Now, my friends, if you would take with me your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 21. Also, please have your bulletin handy with the outline on the back of the uh, bulletin for today's message, but also the insert that provides an outline of Revelation 21, 1 through 22, 5. We're studying in Revelation now the things that consummate the history of redemption. This begins in chapter 20, verse 7, to chapter 22, verse 5. We've already looked at two of them. The last battle of history, chapter 20, 7 to 10. And last week, the last judgment of the dead, chapter 20, 11 to 15. Now we come to the third and final part of this section of Scripture, where we see the things that consummate or bring to conclusion the history of redemption. What is that section? It's the revelation of the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. And this section is from chapter 21, verse 1, to chapter 22, and verse 5. And so we begin the final series of visions in the book of Revelation. Here we see the consummation of the plan of God in redemption and the introduction of the eternal state of blessedness for God's whole creation and God's whole church, both in its Old Testament and New Testament manifestation. This is really a thrilling part of Holy Scripture, and exceedingly important. Here is how George Caird, an amillennialist, by the way, in his approach to Revelation, stated this fact in regard to the unfolding of the message of Revelation. He says this, Now at last John stands on Pishkah and surveys the promised land. In some ways, this is the most important part of his book, as it is certainly the most familiar and beloved. If we only knew, the martyrs cried, where it is all going to end. And much of John's vision and much of the human history it depicts and interprets becomes intelligible, credible, tolerable, when we know the answer, end quote. Let me look at that and make a couple uh, expansions on that statement. He says, John now stands on Pishka. What's that a reference to? It's reference to Moses, who was taken to the top of Mount Pishka on the other side of the Jordan to show to him the promised land the land promised in the covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses, as you know, was not going to go into the land. God had ordained for Joshua to lead the people there. But the Lord gives Moses a vision, literal, a vision of the land. He says, come up on the mountain, and it says, Moses went up from the plains of Moab under the mountain of Nebo to the top of Pishkah, that is, over against Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead unto Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah, unto the utmost sea, and the south, and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, unto Zoar. And the Lord said unto him, This is the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, saying, I will give it unto thy seed. I have caused thee to see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not go over thither. And so what we are given here is a similar experience. We are given a vision of the promised land. What Moses saw was only a dim type of the inheritance that God had for the people of God. It wasn't just the land of Canaan, but it was the whole earth. Not only the earth, but a new earth. 
And what we are given here is a vision of this. We're able to see it with our own eyes as Moses was. Though Moses only saw it in an overview, didn't he? He didn't see all the little details. Nor do we here. But we see enough to know that the inheritance is glorious. Furthermore, as the thinking of what Caird said, he talked about the martyrs and the suffering saints of God. And that's saying that we often have in our own experience, not just even our spiritual experiences, but if only we knew where it was all going to end. Have you ever said that? If only I knew that this is really what was, would come of this. Either I wouldn't have done it, or I would have done it with greater zeal. You see, when we we get to the end of something and we see the outcome or the answer to it, we understand. The problem is, as we go through life, we don't know what it's all going to lead to, what it's going to come to. If only we knew where it is all going to end, is that phrase. And what we're saying here and what Carrot is pointing out to us, God is giving us the answer here. Where does this all end? Where does history all end? What does it come to? What is my life and my sacrifice and my suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ worth? Well, you see, we're going to see what it's worth. We're going to see what is the end of our journey. And to know the end of this journey, we will be filled with confidence and encouragement. Even though our path to the end might be filled with suffering and pain and disappointment, this vision of Revelation 21 will make that journey tolerable. Not only tolerable, we'll be overcomers in the midst of it. Furthermore, he points out when we know the answer to the question, how will it all end? that we can better interpret history and the presence of evil and the constant conflict with it. We saw last week how it ends with the devil and the dead who follow his lies. What's the end of their journey? The lake of fire. But in that, we also learn this as Christians. Perfect justice will be served yet at the end. We see so many injustices in this life, so many evil deeds that seem to go uh, unpunished, unaccounted for. But what we learn here is they will all be accounted for. Everyone will be judged according to their works and give account thereof to God on the day of judgment. And so we're encouraged when we see evil and injustice. When we're the object of evil and injustice and suffering, we know that even if we don't see its resolution in this life, how's it going to end? The books will be open and the dead will be judged out of those things written in the book. But here now we come to the next aspect of how it's all going to end. There we saw how it was going to end for the dead. Here we see how it's going to end for the people of God. And when we see how it ends, we say, thank you, Lord. It is enough. This is all I need. Now, before looking at this series of visions and their details... I think it'd be helpful if we took an overview of it, the Pishka overview, like Moses, of what we're going to see in this vision. So if you'll take that insert outline, please. I want you to know with me, as I, this is my understanding and analysis of it, there's five parts to this last section. Five parts. The first one is a prophetic vision of a new heaven and a new earth in chapter 21, verse 1. It's a prophetic vision. It hasn't happened yet. It hadn't happened in John's time. It hasn't happened yet. We're looking into the future here. You and I, even as John, are looking at a prophetic vision. What's to come in the future? A new heaven and a new earth, a passing away of the first heaven and first earth, and this... Uh, interesting and a statement, there was no more sea. 
Secondly, we then are given a prophetic vision of the holy city, that is the new Jerusalem, in verse 2. Again, this is prophetic, this is future. Here we see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride for her husband. Through the opening visions of this section, both are introduced with, and I saw. Then we come to a great voice from heaven in verses 3 to 8. And I believe this is an interpretive voice. John sees these things, the new heavens, new earth, the new Jerusalem, and then God speaks from heaven to interpret those visions. And here we're told the significance of them. God dwells with his people now in this prophetic vision. Number two, God takes away all death, all sorrow, and all pain. Thirdly, Christ makes all things new. And fourthly, Christ reveals who will inherit all these things and who will not. Third section. Number four, we're given an amazing, we're an astonishing tour of the New Jerusalem. There's seven, or excuse me, ten parts to this tour. It's a glorious tour. We saw this vision of the New Jerusalem coming down, and now we are given a description. And it's a tour because the angel takes him and says, John, I'm going to show you this city. Here we, we see her origin. Number two, her glory. Number three, her wall, gates, and foundations. Number four, her dimensions. Number five, her material construction. Number six, her temple. Number seven, her light. Number eight, her citizens. Number nine, her water. And number ten, her food. And then, <clears throat> the fifth and final section in verses, uh, 22, chapter 22, verses 3 to 5, calling this a glorious summary of eternal blessedness. In other words, it just draws up in these verses a summary of what the blessedness will be of those who live in the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. And there's seven parts to this eternal blessedness. What's eternal life like? Number one, there's no more curse. Number two, God's rule is supreme. Number three, God's servants are active in serving. Number four, God's servants see his face. Number five, God's name is on their forehead. Number six, God's light illuminates all. And number seven, God's re God reigns with his servants forever and ever. God's reign with his servants is forever and ever. And there's a glorious summary of eternal blessedness. So there's an outline of the promised land that is revealed to us here in chapter 21. Now, with that overview, let us look at the details. And this morning, I'd like to look at verses 1 and 2. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. <clears throat> and I saw... John, as we intimated in our introduction, is taken, as it were, to Mount Pisgah. And he's given this view of the promised land. And he's telling us what he saw. And if we will open our eyes and see through his eyes, we too will have a vision of the promised land. And this, this introductory phrase, and I saw, is throughout this section, this final section of the book of Revelation that began in chapter 19. That is the things that take place after the destruction of Jerusalem. Like in verse 11 of 19, And I saw heaven opened. Chapter 20, verse 1, And I saw an angel come down from heaven. Verse 4, And I saw thrones and they that sat upon them. Verse 11, And I saw a great white throne Verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And now we come to the final visions, and I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth. And so the first thing that John sees of the promised land is the land itself and the heaven that goes with it, a new heaven and a new earth. What should come to mind as we read this and we come into this is Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. This is the subject of this vision. Though it is called a new heaven and a new earth. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. When we come to the end of history, what is first put before us? Heaven and earth. The Bible began with that. It ends with that. And it's not just the heaven and the earth, but what God created for that heaven and earth, and particularly how God placed man in it. And so this is really a telling of the Genesis story in the sense of God's new work that he does in the end of the ages. In the first chapter of Genesis, we are given the the six days of creation. And there we see God at work creating the heaven and the earth. The earth is the home of the living creatures that God made. And most importantly there in Genesis 1, we learn that the earth is the home of man, whom God himself made in his own image. In Genesis 1, the heaven that is in view is not the dwelling place of God, as we uh, see that term used in other places in Scripture. It's what we call the atmospheric heaven, the heaven that surrounds the earth. But it also includes in Genesis 1, the heaven that contains the sun, the moon, And the stars, these being called the firmament of heaven. And so the heaven here involves the created universe, not just the earth itself, but the atmosphere around the earth and then the glories of the, the, the sun, the moon, and the stars. God made them. And that's what's in view here. We can't think of this as being somehow divorced. From the original creation. And that leads us to the word new. He didn't just say I saw heaven and earth. But I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is an adjective describing the quality. The nature of this heaven and earth that he saw. Now in the Greek language there are two adjectives. Used to express the concept of newness. The first Naos means new in reference to time. Of something that was recently made. Something that has only been in existence for a very brief period of time. So new in the sense of time. The other one is kainos, which means new in reference to quality. Of something new and improved. Relative to something old that went before. It refers to something that is superior in comparison to that which went before. Now this distinction is important. The new heaven and the new earth are not things new in time. New creations of things that did not exist before. That's not the word used by God to describe this. He's not starting over. He didn't trash the whole other thing and just out of existence. And he's starting over in New Genesis 1.1. No, the word that is used for new here is in respect not to time, but quality. Or as we put it, a new and improved version of the heaven and earth. That existed before. It's new in reference to what went before. What was old, the old earth. The old heaven, it has been renewed. And it is now new and superior in comparison to the old heaven and the old earth. Now let me give you a very uh, homely illustration, homey illustration about the distinction between these words. Let's use the light bulb. The The first light bulbs were incandescent, where they used a wire that would... Uh, be, be heated through electricity and give off light. That's the old light bulbs. But now today we have new light bulbs that 
used technology called LED. Now, LED light bulbs are not new in the sense of the new creation because there were light bulbs before. But at least what the advertisers tell us, this is a new and improved version of the light bulb. It's of a different quality. Not incandescent, but LED. But it is still a light bulb that has been improved. So they tell us. Let me give you a scriptural illustration. Oh, by the way, the first... So the word new that would be used there is the kainos and the new that we're talking about here. There, were, there was a heaven and an earth before. What we have here is an improvement on them. Something superior to them. Here's another one on the spiritual aspect. Jesus said this to his disciples, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. You stop and think, no, wait a minute. That commandment goes way back to Moses, at least, where we are commanded to love our neighbor as ourself, right? You're to love one another. That's a biblical command. That's the whole purpose of the law, to teach us how to love our neighbor. So how is this a new commandment? It is not new in the sense that it never existed before. It is new in this kainos sense. But Jesus explains its newness when he says, not love your neighbors yourself, but love one another as I have loved you. That's the newness. There's a new example. New life has been breathed into the old commandment of loving your neighbor. Because Jesus has come and given a perfect example of what it means to love our neighbor. And so this is the new heavens and new earth. This is not a starting over. It's taking the heavens and the earth that existed and improving them, a new version of them. Well, you say, well, wait a minute. What was wrong with the old heaven and the old earth? Didn't the Bible say and God himself say that when he was done, they were very good? Why do we need a new and improved version? Yes, it is true. The original creation of Genesis 1 and 2 was very good. But then something happened in Genesis 3. What has happened in Genesis 3? The fall of man into sin. And that fall into sin, man's rebellion brought a curse. Here it is, not only on himself, but on his environment. On the heaven and the earth that God had made for him. His sin corrupted him. Here's exactly how Paul, or God said to him, that is Adam, when he brought judgment on Adam. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. And so that perfect creation was now cursed by man's sin. And so the very good original creation came under the curse. And it is that earth, that heaven that's in view here, the one that groaned under the corruption of sin and death and violence and blood and uh, natural disasters and all the terrible things happening on the world where natural resources that God created are now fashioned into weapons of destruction and bloodshed is everywhere. And so this perfect earth has been corrupted by man. That's the old earth that's in view here. Because you can't just look at Genesis 1 and 2. You've got to go to chapter 3 as well. What we have then in this vision of a new heaven and new earth is the renovation of the old broken down heaven and earth so that it might be new in quality and superior to the old. Does this mean a restoration of the cursed earth back to the pristine qualities of the original very good heaven and earth? Yes, it surely does. But it indicates even more than that. For in this new heaven and new earth, the issue is not just physical, but spiritual. And this new heaven and earth has realities inherent in it, appropriate to the completion of the plan of redemption through Jesus Christ and for man in his own complete redemption and glorification to live therein. 
In other words, the first heaven and earth that was perfect was created for a man who was yet just flesh and blood and would come under the probation of obedience or disobedience to God. It was a perfect creation. But we, we need, we're going to get more now when we go back because the man that's going to live in this new heaven and new earth is not a sinless man under probation, but a glorified man who has been made sinless and will be sinless forever. Amen. And so this is new even beyond the original pristine conditions of original paradise. Like I said, the original heaven and earth were perfectly fitted for the dawn of history and for man's probation. But the new heaven and new earth is perfectly fitted for the consummation of history and man's total redemption. And therefore, it's new and improved, even in reference to the original perfect creation. The Bible says the earth is man's home. It's clearly uh, set forth in the book of Genesis in the creation account. But here's one that summarizes it, a verse, Psalm 115.6. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's. But the earth hath he given to the children of men. God the creator's plan, when he made the earth, this would be the home of mankind. Some people think that the ultimate goal for humanity and redemption through Christ is heaven. It is not. Heaven is only a temporary stopping place until the work of redemption is complete, until men receive their glorified bodies so that they can live in what we're looking at now, the new heavens and the new earth. Heaven is not our home in the permanent sense, even though the hymn writer says, this earth is not my home, I'm just a passing through. That's wrong. This earth is my home, but not this cursed one. I have to leave and go to my temporary residence without my body, in the presence of God, in heaven, until the work of redemption is complete and the home has been prepared and I have been prepared for the home and then I will come that earth is my home. It's our eternal home. Does that surprise you? Does it shock you? Does it disturb you? I hope not. Do you like this earth? I do. Do you want to live here forever? I do. But not under its current conditions. I'll be willing to go to heaven while the remodeling takes place. But when it's complete, I cannot wait to move into my new home. Here on earth. It says that this takes place in reference to the first heaven and the first earth passing away. It's the next phrase we have. I saw a new heaven and new earth. In other words, this is new renovated earth and heaven. The atmospheric heaven, the starry heaven. Not God's heaven, but the created heaven and earth that God made for mankind and for all of his creatures, really. But we give in this phrase, for the first heaven and first earth were passed away. This explains to us the reason for a new heaven and new earth. We need a new heaven and new earth because the old one has passed away. It has come to an end. It is no longer on the scene. The word first here, by the way, is used in a sequential sense of what went before the new heavens and the earth. It's not talking about the pristine earth before the fall, but the earth that was directly preceding the new heavens and new earth, and that was the earth under a curse. And this explanatory clause takes us back to Revelation 20, verse 11. Remember this? And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, for there was found no place for them. There we discussed and we said that in connection with the final judgment of sinful man is also connected the earth that they have corrupted by their sin. 
And it indicates that world that they corrupted by their sin is going to pass away, just like they are. And the reason it's going to pass away is to make way for the new heaven and the new earth. And when it says there was no place found for them, it means there was no place left in the universe for a sin-corrupted world. The final day of judgment of sinful men has come. Sinful men corrupted the earth, and that's where they lived. But now they have been judged and cast into the lake of fire, and there's no longer any place for that world that was under the curse, that was under the bondage of corruption, as Romans 8.21 says. And then it says, and there was no more sea. This is an interesting phrase, and it's generated debate among commentators. Does it mean that the new and improved earth will have no sea, no ocean, no lakes, no Mediterranean seas or whatever the like? Or is it to be understood, here's the debate, or is it to be understood, here's the other view, symbolically? That is, not physically. So the question is, does the sea stand as a symbol for something else? Not the sea literally, but the sea is a symbol. And it's the thing that is symbolized that will not be present, not the sea itself. It is certainly possible, I grant, that there will no longer be any seas or oceans in the new earth. But I will say this, I am doubtful that that's what it means. Here's why. I'll try to cover this real quick, because this is not something of um, uh, overriding importance, but I think it's, to me, it's important, (laughs) because it tells me something, it gives me an insight into what this world and new heaven and earth will be like. Here's why I think it's symbolic. In other words, I believe there will be a sea, seas, oceans, or whatever we want to call them, great bodies of water. If you read the initial, this is the first reason, if you read the initial creation account, and I encourage you to do that when you get a chance, it put a great deal of emphasis on the sea. This was not some secondary part, but essential to God's plan and program. It was part of God's very good original creation. The sea was declared to be very good. If the sea was very good then, what would make it unworthy of inclusion in the new heavens and new earth now? So my first point is, it was declared, it was central to the whole creation account, central to what God was doing is for the creatures that he created and for man, and it was declared, the sea was declared to be very good. Secondly, the sea was the home of thousands and thousands of varieties of plants and animal life. You read it. Let the seas bring forth abundantly. And think of, you've seen, uh, I'm sure, if not with your own eyes, with photographs and and, uh, movies, videos, of the absolute stunning beauty of the life in the oceans, in the seas, of coral and of plants and of amazing fish, and eels, and crabs, and everything you could imagine. And you say, what a wonderful God this is to create such a world in the seas. If there's no sea in the new earth, there's none of those creatures, none of those plants in the new heavens and new earth. They've been canceled. Why? Don't they still declare the glory of God, not by their mouths, but by their beauty and the wisdom of the Creator that is revealed in their being. So if you take away the sea, you take away all of this wonderful life, all of this wonderful work of God that testifies to the skill and the wisdom of the Creator. But there's more than just a logical thing. Look at Romans 8. I believe that this teaches... That there will be plant and animal life in the new earth. It'll be beautiful. Can you imagine a new heavens, a new earth with no plant life? No animal life, no birds singing, no butterflies, no beautiful flowers? Of course not. 
And you shouldn't even begin to think of such a thing. Romans, in this passage I read uh, two weeks ago, this is a key text. I pray that you will study this and see this is one of the most important passages of all in understanding the future new heavens and new earth. And Paul begins by saying, for I reckon, this is 8.18, for I reckon, I consider, I deduce, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In other words, when you know the end of it all, you can endure the sufferings getting there. For the earnest expectation of the creature or the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity. It's not talking about man, it's talking about the created world, the plants, the animals, the beautiful cycles of nature. All of this was made subject to a type of vanity. Not willingly, but by reason of him which subjected in hope. He subjected it, but not as the final outcome of the the, the mixed up creation where animals prey upon animals and they say nature's uh, red with tooth and claw. That's not the original plan. That came about because of sin. And God has subjected it to that, but there's hope for it. Because the creature itself, the creation, which I think involves the sea, and the life of the sea, and the animals, and the beautiful life of the the ground and the the plants thereof, the creation itself, this physical glorious creation that Genesis talks about, this is uh, in addition to man, will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. They will, this creation, as it were, will share in the same glorious liberty that we will receive. We brought it under the curse. Our redemption will bring it out of it. For we know, it says, that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So my argument is this. God is going to redeem the whole creation, and it seems to me that would have to involve the redemption of the sea. Not salvation from sin, but deliverance from the corruption that man's sin brought. The whole creation is subject. If there's no sea, then all of the wonders of the sea, the wonders of the plant, light, and animal life disappear. So I don't think it means there's going to be no more sea in a literal sense. There's another thing about this in Revelation 5.13. It says, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne forever and ever. Now it seems to me if in Revelation 5.13 in this highly symbolic uh, but gloriously uh, dynamic picture of the worship of all creation, giving the glory to the God that where the sea is mentioned in a heavenly scene, not that the sea is up there, but the sea is part of the creation that is bringing glory to God. If it was so wonderful in Revelation 5.13 in that heavenly vision, how come it's put out of commission in this vision? My point is it's not. (laughs) So what is it? It's symbolic. The sea is used in Daniel and in Revelation as a symbol of the nations of the earth in their rebellion against God. You can look at that in Daniel 7, verses 2 and 3. We'll look at our only here, for time's sake, just at Revelation. Remember this? Very significant chapter. Revelation 13, 1. John says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And what we saw when we studied that is the sea here was a symbol of the Gentile nations. That the sea here was a symbol of the, the rise of the Roman Empire and its blasphemous heads, that is the Caesars, who would then come and be the instrument of the devil, the dragon, in opposing the plans and works of God. And so the sea is clearly used in Revelation 13.1 as a symbol of the nations of the earth, particularly Rome, and its rebellion against God. 
The symbolic use of the sea considers the sea in terms of its present cursed situation, where we see the sea as powerful, dangerous, dark, and restless. And the sea inspires a certain amount of fear in us. That's the current situation of the sea. In fact, this is used by the, uh, by the prophet, the sea, to rec- represent the wicked. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, which cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. That's the sea of today, and that's a re- reference to the wicked. What John is saying is there shall be no, or what he sees in the vision, there'll be no such sea as that in the new creation. It's going to be wonderful. And the thing that makes the, 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 the world that we live in so hard to bear is the rebellious restlessness of the wicked who are like the troubled sea that cannot rest, that are always casting up moral mire and ethical dirt. None of that. It's all gone. The pristine beauty of the original creation, not only in its physical sense, but in its moral sense. No more rebellion. William Henderson says, at present, the sea is the emblem of unrest and conflict. The roaring, raging, agitated, tempest-tossed waters, the waves perpetually engaged in combat with one another, symbolize the nations of the world in the conflict and unrest. It is the sea out of which the beast rises. But in the renewed universe, the new heaven and new earth, all will be peace. End quote. So, I, I, so that's my interpretation of that. There will be sea. There will be the beauties of the sea life and the sea plants and creatures. But there will be no ugliness of the human rebellion and restlessness which sea here, I believe, provokes. Now if you want to hold that it still means to the literal sea, that's fine with me. But I don't believe that. And I've given you a reason why I don't. And I hope that you have paid attention to it. And in fact, you're excited by this little side... Uh, moment because it tells us all about the new earth. It's going to be filled with the glorious plants and animals and the beauty of the creation. We're not going to inherit a desert which is you and I. No plants, no birds, no foliage. That's not, that's not, that's not paradise according to Revel, uh, Genesis. One other thing that I want to mention, i got to move on on this, but some think that really when we look at verse 1, the new heaven and new earth, is really not a picture of the eternal state at all. But really what we're doing is stepping back again to the millennium. And the new heavens and new earth are actually a description of the millennium. In other words, there's not a development of this, but now there's a regression. And so with this, the new heaven and new earth are millennial things, not eternal things. I disagree, and I agree with Andrew Fuller, who says, no, the new heavens and new earth follow the final battle of history, the defeat and judgment of Satan, and the final judgment of the dead, while the millennium precedes him. Number two, the millennium is for a limited period of time, while the state of the new heaven and new earth, we're told in Revelation 22.5, is forever and ever. In the millennium, the dragon is bound, but only for a limited period of time, and then will be released again. But in this vision, there is no dragon or enemy of any kind left. Therefore, I do not at all take that position, and I would encourage you not to yourself. But some say, what about Isaiah 65, 17 through 25? Doesn't that point to the millennial period? And isn't that the first time the phrase... The new heavens and new earth appears. There's some truth in that. My view of Isaiah 65, 17 to 25 is what I've earlier explained as inaugurated eschatology. What does that mean? What is inauguration? Well, when a president is inaugurated, he is beginning his presidency, but it's not the middle nor the end of the president, just beginning. Inaugurated eschatology is that with the coming of Christ, In a sense, there was the inauguration of the new heavens and new earth. But only in seed form, seminal form. It is not until the end of history and our vision here that the full manifestation comes. One aspect of this uh, inaugurated eschatology is in you. 
if you're a Christian. Therefore, if any man or any woman be in Christ, they're a new creation. There's the newness. There's the introduction, the inauguration. They're a new creation. He's a new creature. All things are passed. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And so there's the inauguration of this glorious thing, but it's got a long way to go. And what we see in Revelation 21 is the consummation of it in its perfection. Which leads us finally <coughs> to the vision of the holy city, New Jerusalem, also a prophetic vision. Notice again John testifies solemnly, and I, John, saw. It's like almost even more than the verse 1, and I saw, but I want to let you know, I, John, I want you to know who's writing this, I saw this. <laughs> if anybody doubts it, I saw it, I, John. You ever say that to somebody? You might not say your first name, but said, I saw it. I myself saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. Instead of just saying, I saw it, you emphasize it so people realize that you really saw it. John is telling you and I, as he writes this book, now friends, remember, this is a living man who was a disciple of Jesus Christ who was giving to us his eyewitness account of what he saw. This is not fairy tale language. This is history. John is giving to us the history of the visions he received. And this is what John saw. He saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now in the context of Revelation, there can be no doubt that this holy city, this new Jerusalem, is coming forth in stark contrast to the wicked apostate old Jerusalem. We have spent a year talking about the old Jerusalem in the prophecies and in the revelations of this book. That was the the one that that God was going to judge for its apostasy and raised up the Roman army and with the Roman Jewish war of 66 to 70 AD and the judgment culminated in 70 AD when when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was leveled. The Old Testament order of sacrifices all ended. God's judgment came on that. And then we have this incredible uh, vision of chapter 17 and 18 where this old Jerusalem is pictured as a horrible whore. It's called under the name of Babylon, which was the center of idolatry in the world. And it's destroyed. And so the old Jerusalem, the whore, is gone. Just like the old earth fled away to make way for the new, so the old Jerusalem has been taken away to make new way for the new Jerusalem. And that's what we see here. In contrast to the wicked city and old Jerusalem, we see the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Now to understand this, we need to step back a minute and remember what Jerusalem was. And what I mean by that is not what it came to be in the apostasy of the of rejection Christ and killing the prophets, but what it was in the Old Testament by God's choice and calling. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the center, became the center of the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant nation of Israel, the people of God of the Old Covenant. God chose that city for himself. He put his name there. There he established the Davidic king who would sit as his representative and serve as a type of his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who would come to redeem the world. There in the Old Testament Jerusalem, God had his temple built. And in that temple, he dwelt in the holy place, holiest of holies among his people. And it was only at that temple that sacrifices were to be offered. It was in Jerusalem at that temple where the Levitical priesthood served. It was the temple to which the people came and gathered for their three annual feasts. Jerusalem was the center. And it became, as the center, the symbol of the Old Testament and the Old Testament covenant people. It was a city separated unto God. In that sense, it was holy. But sadly, that holy city became a whore, and God had to judge it. But in the Old Testament, it was a symbol of the people of God. 
but it failed. But it also went out of business, as it were, because it was no longer going to be necessary. Even without its apostasy, Jerusalem was to be retired from its position. Here's how Jesus put it in a theological discussion with a very immoral woman. That is, she had had many husbands, in that sense, immoral. She says, uh, Sir, I believe, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, that is Mount Gezerim. You say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. There was the debate. Samaritans said Mount Gerizim. The Jews said Jerusalem. She said, what do you say? You're a prophet. I'd like to hear an answer to that question. She didn't anticipate, nor would the Jews have ever anticipated this answer. He says, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither worship in this mountain, that is Gerizim, nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you know not. We worship, we know what we worship for salvation of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Do you realize what he's saying here? With the, with the establishment of the new covenant, Jerusalem ceases to have covenantal significance. Up until that point, believe me, you worshipped in Jerusalem. To do otherwise was sin. That is the worship of the sacrifices and the worship of the festivals. But Jesus says the hour is coming and now is that that's all over. And it will be in spirit and truth that people worship him. And he doesn't develop it here. But it will be in and through me that they worship him. In a sense, Jesus becomes the new Jerusalem himself. He is the Davidic king. God has put his name upon him. He is the great high priest. He is to whom prayer is to be offered. And so Jerusalem, in the new covenant, is found in Jesus Christ. All the fulfillment of the Old Testament Jerusalem is fulfilled in Christ. And, like in the Old Testament, there was David, but there was also the people. So in the New Testament, there's Christ and there is the people, the church. And so the new covenant, Jerusalem, is found in Jesus Christ and his people. And the word new that is used here, guess what? It's the same word as in verse 1. New in respect of quality. New and improved version of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a very important place. It was a holy place. God chose it, but it's God's done with that. But he also didn't just set it aside gently. He had to destroy it because of rebellion. And we learned all about that in Revelation so far. But the new Jerusalem is centered in Christ, the son of David, the great high priest and prophet of the Lord. The new Jerusalem has Christ as its head and the church as its body. And because the new Jerusalem is of Christ, the new Jerusalem today, I'm talking about our day, is located where Christ is. If Christ is the center of the new Jerusalem, if he's the, the David, the temple, the prophet, the priest, new Jerusalem has to be where he is. And where is he? He's in heaven. And so where do the people of God go who are the members of his church when they die? To the new Jerusalem. In heaven. But what is our picture here? It's leaving heaven. The new Jerusalem is coming down from heaven. It's coming where? To earth. This is an emphatic confirmation that the eternal home of the people of God is not heaven, but it's earth. It's temporary because Christ is there, but Christ will return to earth with his church. And this is the symbolism of this vision and establish the new Jerusalem on this new earth under the new heaven. That's what we see here as I understand it. And many others as well. It's a glorious vision. It's a thrilling vision. It's an exciting vision. This is the descent of the redeemed church from its home, temporary home in heaven, with Christ to earth to take up residence forever and ever 
on the new earth, under the new heaven, with those beautiful seas. <laughs> oh my, what a glorious vision. It says in Hebrews 12, during this time now, before this vision's fulfillment, you come to the new Jerusalem, uh, come to Mount Zion, he says, under the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Again, why is it in heaven? Because that's where Christ is. Wherever Christ is, the new Jerusalem is. And when we're in Christ, in conversion, we are made part of the new Jerusalem. But we're not at the location of the new Jerusalem. We're an earthly um, camp, you might say. I'm struggling for analogies. Because the new Jerusalem is Christ, in Christ, through Christ. Christ, Christ is the new Jerusalem. And only if you're in Christ are you part of the new Jerusalem and become a member of it. He goes on to say in Hebrews, you come to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. Okay? You've come to that here on earth, and you'll go to it when you die, as we saw earlier in Revelation 7. But what happens when it's all over? The redemption is complete. The church is full. All believers are brought in. The end of history comes. It no longer remains in heaven. It descends to earth. Now, are we saying that the vision here is only of a symbol and not also of an actual city? Is this completely spirit to be spiritualized? This new Jerusalem in Revelation 20 I firmly believe no. Just like the old Jerusalem was both a literal city and a symbol, so the new Jerusalem in the Revision here is a literal city and a symbol. That makes sense? Remember, it was, the old Jerusalem was a city, but it was far more than a city. It was a symbol. It was a dwelling place of God. It was the center of the covenant. So this is not just a symbol of the new covenant, not just a picture of Christ and his church. It is really a city. The new earth is a spatial place, just like you and I will have bodies that take up space. This will take up space. It will be here on earth. And we're going to get a grand tour of this city later on. So we'll reserve comment until then. But notice it's coming down from heaven. Again, confirming the former location of the new Jerusalem was heaven. Now it's going to be an earth. The eternal dwelling place of Christ and his people is not heaven, but earth. Temporarily, right now, yes, it is heaven. Our loved ones do die and go to heaven, and we will go there the same if it all happens before Christ's consummation. But here's the end of it all. How does it all end? Remember that question? Here's our answer. And it comes from God because ultimately all things come from God. As we look at the work of the Trinity, we remember this, uh, I think, helpful distinction. All things are from the Father, through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. From in the sense God's the source, the ultimate source of everything. Because it's His will that makes it all happen. From the Father... Through the Son, that is, Christ comes and does the work of redemption. Redemption was ordained to the Father. It was fulfilled by Christ who did the work. It was through Him, and it is by the Holy Spirit. That is, it's applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And it's from God. And it's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The word prepared here means ready for the moment. Notice it's not said to be a bride, but only prepared as a bride. As a bride adorned for a husband is just an explanatory phrase to tell us that this new Jerusalem is beautiful. Now, would a bride appear for her glorious moment before her husband and the assembled guest with her hair all disheveled, didn't have it put up yet? And she still had... Uh, the dress she wore to the church didn't have her wedding gown on. Of course not. Or she didn't have her, her flowers or whatever. No, the, the bride doesn't appear until everything is prepared. Until she's beautiful for her husband. 
And that's what it's saying here. The new Jerusalem is not going to come till it's ready to come. That's why it didn't come yet. It's not ready to come. It's when it's prepared that the moment will be here. Now, how is it prepared? Who prepares it? It's Christ who prepares it. Four things are necessary for the bride to be prepared for this vision to come into historical manifestation. Number one, Christ will have had completed the building of his church where all the elect are there. Everyone that he died for is present and accounted for. Number two, Christ has cleansed each of those members completely of their sin and set them apart as holy as his own. Number three, as part of that preparation, Christ will glorify each member when he will raise them from the dead and give them glorified bodies that are fit for eternal life on the new earth and in the new Jerusalem. And number four, Christ will have reviewed and assessed the life and service of all of his people and he will be, have given to them their appropriate rewards. So part of their beauty will be the rewards they've received. All the electorate. All have been cleansed of their sin. All have been received their resurrection body. All have received their rewards. And then it's ready. It's prepared. Like a bride for her husband. And so it descends from heaven. In conclusion, the new heaven and the new earth, the word new in the new heaven and new earth is not a, term new in the sense of time, but of quality. It represents the complete renovation of the original creation that had been corrupted by man's sin. The curse and all of its effects are removed. I read Romans 8, 18 to 23 today, and in a previous sermon, when the earth was fleeing away in chapter 20, I looked at, with you at 2 Peter 3, 10 to 13. Those are the two most important passages, I think, on what the new heaven and new earth are like and how they came to be. Let me say this. All the beauty and harmony and perfection of the original creation will be restored. All the elements of the original creation, plants, creatures, and so on, will be perfected, restored. But it will not simply, though, be, as the uh, great epic was entitled, Paradise Restored. It's more than Paradise Restored. Do, you, do we understand this, how glorious this is? It's not just going back to Eden. It's coming to the new heavens and new earth in glorified bodies forever free from sin and never able to sin again. No more temptation, no more probation. Perfect liberty. Amen. Again, by review and application, the earth was created for man and given to him as his home at the beginning. Because of sin, all of this was disrupted. But the final stage of man's redemption will be the restoration of him to his original home in all the glory of the new earth and the new heaven. What we see in verse 1 and what God is going to do, we might call the greatest remodeling project in history. And it began in Genesis 3 when he slayed the animals and covered Adam and Eve in their nakedness of sin. And it's the work's been going on and on and on until it comes to this. So again, I say this to you. Man's eternal home is not heaven, but the new earth. And as we will see in the explanation next week, it is heaven come down to earth. doesn't mean we're divorced from heaven. Instead, God decides to move it down with us. That's what it says. God's going to live with you, dwell with you now. Right now we die and go dwell with him here in this thing. He's going to come and dwell with us on the earth that he created for us. Amazing. And the phrase that there is no more sea, I believe, as I set forth today, should be interpreted symbolically. 
Because Romans 8, 18 to 23 indicates all creation, all of it, all that was done in Genesis 1 will be delivered from the corruption, including the sea and its abundant life. The sea, rather, is used here as a metaphor. Sea of uh, Revelation 13.1 of the human sin and restlessness. That's all gone. The New Jerusalem is both a city and a symbol. We'll develop that more. It is a symbol, but it is also, I believe, in this picture, an actual city that will rest on the new earth. As a symbol, it represents Christ, who is its chief cornerstone. And also, it's Jesus' disciples who are the living stones that make it up. As a literal city, though, it it will have features. It will have a material construction. It will have gates. It will have foundations. And we will look at that when we have our tour. At the appointed time, the new Jerusalem will relocate from heaven to earth. And that's the part of our vision here in in verse 2. The heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, where Christ is, will change locations. The end of time, the end of human history as we know it, and come down here to earth. Which leads me to the final word that we started our sermon with. If only we knew how it was all going to end. Brothers and sisters, we are shown here how it is going to end. Now we know how it's going to end. And may God inspire you and encourage you and, and strengthen you to persevere. The journey is hard, but the end is of indescribable glory, though John tries to describe it for us. And we're looking forward to the rest of the journey. Amen. Lord, thank you for this vision you gave to John and through him to us. Open our eyes to it. Thrill our souls and by it. Enlighten our our sorrowing hearts. Lift up our hands and feet that are dragging. We would again lift our eyes on our journey to this new Jerusalem, this new earth and new heaven. Amen.